I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 3. Um, you'll notice that almost all of our music this morning is taken straight out of our text this morning, which is one of the most important texts in all of Philippians. I would argue it's one of the most important texts in all of the New Testament about how we fundamentally understand the gospel. Now, I want to begin by way of illustration before we jump into Philippians chapter 3. I want to begin by saying that um, if you know me well and you ever come to my house and you sit with me on my couch, um, you will find out very quickly that I love, I love do-it-yourself television. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. My wife loves do-it-yourself television. I actually despise do-it-yourself television. All right, you've all seen these shows, right? The point of these shows, the do-it-yourself renovation shows, the point of these shows is to give you, the viewer, with little to no actual carpentry or building skills, confidence that you can actually tear out your entire bathroom, you can actually, with just a, a hammer, a few scraps of wood, and some quirky new shade of paint, have a glamorous new room that would be fit for a royal. Now, if you just have enough creativity, just enough drive, just enough tenacity, and an endless supply of money, then you too can do it yourself. Now, that's not what actually happens, though. Okay, I have, We have some builders in our church. We have some contractors. They know that's not how it actually works. You don't see on all of these shows all of the behind-the-scenes framing carpenters, the contractors, the cleaning crews, the inspectors, the finished carpenters with all of their punch lists. No, 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 no. They don't show you that. What they, what they do is they show you this, 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 and this, and then at the end, they have this great reveal, and then everybody cries. Everybody hugs. And then, they, then you go to Lowe's, and you spend $15,000, and then after six months, you call somebody to come fix your mess. Okay, that's what happens, okay? That's do-it-yourself, right? Now, what Paul is going to do this morning, as we open our Bibles to Philippians 3, what Paul is going to do is he is going to tear down any notion of do-it-yourself religion. Do-it-yourself religion. He's going to destroy it and dismantle it. Any notion in us that we can earn or merit favor with God by any self-help efforts. DIY shows are good for TV, but DIY religion will destroy you. It is not what the Bible teaches. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll walk through the text together. I'm going to begin, though, back in, verse three, back in uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 3 with the context as we go into verses 4 through 9, if you remember that from last week. This is what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. That's who we are, the Gentile Christians in Philippi. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then notice what he says. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. I want to break this into three sections as we go through it together. I want you to notice first the falsehood of fleshly confidence. That's how our text begins in verses 4 through 6 when Paul says there that if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, you that like to boast in your accomplishments, you that like to boast in your flesh and in who you are and what you do, if anyone thinks you have confidence, I have more. Paul says, I have more than you. I have more. And then I want you to notice that Paul begins after this to talk through the reasons of why he could put confidence in the flesh as if it mattered to God. Paul used to think that it did. That's the point here. Paul used to think these things mattered to his relationship to God. And in his day, Paul had every possible advantage. He had every possible advantage. So what were those advantages that Paul had that if you think you have some advantages, he has more? Well, here they are, four of them. First, Paul had a covenantal advantage. What do I mean by that? Well, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So think about this. Paul was born, and eight days later, he was introduced into the Abrahamic covenant to its promises and blessings when he was circumcised, as were all male children of Israel. Paul writes about this advantage in Romans. He says that every advantage were given to the Jews. Every advantage were given to those who were circumcised into the covenant promises of Abraham. This is what he says in Romans 9. He says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They were adopted as God's people. The glory, the glory of the temple and all of its services, the covenants, the the covenants that were given to them, not only in the law, but also through David. Also the covenant given to Noah, And he says, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. That's where we get our religion. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul had the advantage of being born into the people that God chose to make his own by grace. It's a covenantal advantage. Second, Paul had an ancestral advantage. Even beyond the covenantal advantage, he had an ancestral advantage. Look what he says. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was the second son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved. In fact, when Benjamin was being born, um, Rachel was dying. And and, uh, Jacob um, uh, Jacob said to her, what shall we name him? And she said, name him ben Oni." which means son of my pain, because she was dying. And Jacob stepped in and said, no, no, no. He will not be Ben-Oni, he will be Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. 
And though Benjamin was not the, the, covenantal, uh, the covenantal line of Judah, though that's not the case, Benjamin gave Israel their first king, Saul. And when all of the other tribes abandoned David, Benjamin stayed faithful. He says, I'm part of the really elite, two, the two elite tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And then, so he had an ancestral advantage, but then Paul had a parental advantage. Notice what he says. He says, born a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that means is that Paul is saying here that he was privileged to grow up as the son of covenant-keeping, God-fearing Jews. He wasn't ushered into the, he wasn't a Gentile who became a Jew. No, no, no. He was born into a Jewish family. So he heard the Shema daily and was taught to love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was given the best religious education and experience possible as their son. And we know, all of us in this room, we know the incredible advantages that good parents give us. And Paul had them. But then lastly, Paul had a moral and religious advantage. He had a moral and religious advantage. So much so that it let, uh, notice here, Paul chose, it says here that Paul chose to become a member of the strictest party of Judaism. You've heard of the Sadducees, you've heard of the Zealots, well he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest party. He was so committed to honoring the will and way of God that he obeyed it, obeyed it down to the seventh interpretation. He vigorously studied the law and applied it to his life, so much so that it led him to persecute those he saw as the enemy of God's law. Christians, they were an enemy of God's law. So he would persecute them, and he could say, he could say that in regards to law-keeping, he was blameless. Think about being able to make that statement truthfully. I'm blameless in regards to the law. No one could lay charge to him that he didn't obey the law. Paul had reached the pinnacle of moral and religious prestige. As a Pharisee, he is a professional moralist and legalist. But this is Paul's point regarding all of that. He says, if you have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more than you. You don't have any advantage that I didn't have. This is Paul's point. This is what you have to understand. Paul's point here is that everything he had and did was fleshly. Notice the wording he uses. He says, if you have, if you have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I can put more confidence in the flesh. Everything about Paul was fleshly. He was circumcised in the flesh, but not in his heart. He was born fleshly into God's Jewish family, but he was not born spiritually into God's family. He was zealous for moral and he was zealous for moral righteousness, fleshly moral righteousness, but he wasn't motivated or empowered by God's indwelling spirit. That's why everything he did was outside of bounds. That's Paul's whole life of verses 4 through 6. Prior to coming to Jesus, everything about Paul and everything about us is as good as the flesh can give us. That's all it is. Now, it's not spiritual. This is why it can't be spiritual. Hear me. It can't be spiritual because we, due to sin, are all spiritually dead. 
There is no spiritual life in us outside of Jesus. That's what the Bible says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. That's the reason you're spiritually dead. You need spiritual life. John, Jesus says over in John 6, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. All of Paul's advantages profited him nothing because they were fleshly. But then, Paul also adds in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Think about that. Everything that Paul had, none of it pleased God. Every other advantage you think you have, if it's very similar to Paul's, in the flesh does not please God because it's fleshly. Now, this is the big hang-up for many of us. I want you to hear me. This is the hang-up that we have. We tend to think that man is only as bad, man is only bad, we tend to think that man is only bad when he is at his worst. We're like, well, he's only bad when he's stealing, or he's only bad when he's abusing or murdering. But what the Bible makes incredibly clear is that we are just as bad off for, before God when we're at our best. Did you hear me? We are just as bad off before God when we're at our best. Not when we're just at our worst, when we're at our best. That's the issue, right? That is the issue. Self-indulgence and self-righteousness are simply two sides of the same coin. They will never earn you righteousness before God. So, being and living fleshly is the proper description of every person, whether the vilest and lowest criminal, Hitler, or the most morally virtuous and self-righteous person on earth. Apart from a personal spiritual relationship with Jesus. This is Paul's point. Paul's point isn't that he was doing great, but his standards were too low. That's what we tend to think. Well, Paul, we, we can agree with Paul by saying, yeah, Paul, you were doing great. Your standard was just a little too low. You had a really good standard, but it, wasn't, it was just too low. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that all of his effort was only what the flesh could produce. It was at its core self-righteousness. Do-it-yourself righteousness. And Jesus hates it. Jesus hates it. Listen to what Jesus tells Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's self-indulgence. That's self God's law doesn't matter. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus says, okay, that's one side of the coin. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But this is what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' point isn't that you have to earn more righteousness yourself. His point is that you need a righteousness that comes from somewhere else. Not from self. You need another kind of righteousness. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 5. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I've not come to call the self-righteous in their own eyes, but sinners to repentance. So Paul's whole point is the false, this is a false confidence of the flesh. If you put confidence here, you are going to be sorely disappointed. There's no such thing as do-it-yourself religion when it comes to Jesus. That's what every other religion in the world is. Do it yourself. We don't need that. Notice the second part of our text. The radical reversal of knowing Christ. The radical reversal of knowing Christ. Because everything changes in Paul's life in verses 7 and 8. He says there, But whatever gain I had, all of those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice that three times Paul points out that I have a new accounting software. I have a new accounting software. Everything about the way I've taken records has drastically changed. Now this happened when Paul met Jesus in Acts chapter 9 and he was, in, he was introduced to Jesus and at that point an entire new system revolutionized his heart, his mind, and his soul. He had a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing Jesus, and a new way of balancing his assets and advantages. Up to this point, you have to remember in Acts chapter 9, up to this point, Paul had spurned Jesus. Paul had rejected Jesus. He had hated Jesus. He had hated his followers. But when his eyes were opened, he recognized that Jesus was the one treasure. Jesus was the one possession. Jesus was the one pearl of great, cri- of great price that caused him to completely disregard everything on the other side of the scale. Paul had these scales and he had stacked up this do-it-yourself religion of his, of his ancestry and of his righteousness and of his study and of his zeal. And when he sees Jesus, he goes, this stuff isn't even on the scale anymore. This stuff is loss. That is what verse 7 is about. Whatever advantage Paul had was now accounted as loss for the sake of Christ, his supreme treasure. Now notice here, this is super important. Notice the sheer individualism that, of Paul's comments. Paul says, I gained Christ. I counted those things as loss. I gave it all up for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. So Paul had gained Christ and it was an intensely personal transaction with Jesus. Paul alone, this is important, Paul alone had to come to terms with Jesus, as do each of us here. Each of you, as an individual, each of you has an appointment with Jesus alone, where you will not be able to hide behind another. You will not be able to use another as an excuse. You will not be able to blame another for your choices. Paul says it is, and Paul's understanding is that each of the individuals in the church at Philippi had to have an individual, intentional, transforming experience with Jesus by faith. You have to come to Jesus yourself. You don't get to use anyone else. Now, many of us here, 
many of us here, can we, we share many of the same blessings and advantages that Paul had, don't we? By God's grace, we were born into the United States among a people where the gospel was freely given and proclaimed. We didn't choose that. God did. And many of us were born to godly, Jesus-loving parents who showed us and taught us the gospel. And because of that, many of us grew up in a church hearing God's word regularly. We had good Bible instruction and moral character development like Paul. But none of those things will save us. None of them. We must have an individual relationship with Jesus where we treasure Him above all else as individuals. This church can't save you. This pastor can't save you. That baptistry up there can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Notice what Paul says, that when he comes to Jesus in his new accounting system, everything else is considered as rubbish. That's the word for refuse. Dung. Is that all that stuff I thought was an advantage compared to Jesus? It's a refuse. It's not something I'd treasure. Could you imagine treasuring that? It's kind of gross. But that's what he says, right? That Jesus is better than anything his zealous moral religion could give him. And on the other side, Jesus is better than any fleeting pleasure that sin offers. He's better than all of that. And he's worth giving up moral self-righteousness on the one end and moral debauchery and self-indulgence on the other. Jesus is better. Paul has said he's taken account of everything and Jesus far surpasses those things. Now this is exactly what Moses did in Hebrews 11. If you were to turn to Hebrews 11, you'd hear the story about Moses by faith. If you remember Moses' story, this is what Hebrews says about Moses' story. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, you remember he was put in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter found him floating among the reeds because the, the young boys were supposed to be killed by the, by the Hebrew midwives? He says, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses made a choice. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Think of what Moses gave up. Moses gave up the political and social and economic privileges of being Pharaoh's daughter, and he traded them for what? Being mistreated with God's people as slaves. Because he was looking for the reward. He was looking for something else. Now here's my question to you. What are some of the things that you count as gain in your life? Take an account. What are some of those things you, you take as gain? Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your education, your athletic skill and prowess. Maybe it's your position at work, your family name and legacy, your intellect, your musical talents. The question is, will any of those things commend you to God? The question is, you know, Will any of those things save you from the judgment for your sins? Will any of those things satisfy the deepest longings of your soul for intimacy and fellowship with God? It's do-it-yourself religion. Paul says it's worthless when you finally find Jesus. And I want you to notice finally the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul says in verse 9, look what he says. He says... 
He says, I gave up all of those things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a do-it-yourself righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now here it is. Paul says he's willing to give up everything, everything, that he might know Christ and be found in Him. Paul is trading his self-righteousness and fleshly confidence. And he says, I don't need that kind of righteousness. I need the righteousness that only Christ can give me. A righteousness that I need to stand in God's presence, worthy of His blessing and approval. Now I want you to know that this whole issue of alien righteousness, imputed righteousness, is the whole center of the book of Romans. When you read Romans, the whole heart of the gospel and the heart of, this, the, heart of the question, this is the question of, the, of, the, of Romans, how are guilty sinners, that's us, how are we accounted as righteous before God? How does God consider us righteous? How does God treat us, um, how does, how does God treat us as something other than sinners deserving His wrath? And here's the answer. This is the summary, okay? I'm not going to preach the whole book of Romans. Amen? Here's the summary. This is what he says. In Romans, the first point is everybody's guilty. Everybody's guilty, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. And because of our guilt, we're under God's wrath. Everybody. There's none righteous, no, not one. How many? None. How many of you are righteous? None. How many have their own righteousness? None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Not one. Don't think you're an exception. Second point of Romans, the righteousness we need can only come from faith. It only comes from faith. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham receive righteousness? By faith. He believed God and it was given to him. God counted him as righteous before he was circumcised and 400 years before the law was given. So was Abraham accounted righteous because he got circumcised? Nope. Was he accounted righteous because he kept the law? He had been dead for 400 years. He was accounted righteous by, righteous by faith. That's the point. And so, circumcision can't make you righteous and neither can the law. God does it on the basis of faith. And then here's the, here's the glorious good news of the gospel. Jesus came and earned the righteousness that becomes ours by faith. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus earned righteousness for us. Romans 5.19 says, For as the one man's disobedience, that's Adam in the garden, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So this is Christ's righteousness accounted to us by God by faith. And when God sees us in Christ, hear me, this is the good news of the gospel. Christ does when Christ... This is, lost my place, got excited. Woo! When God sees us in Christ, He doesn't simply see a forgiven sinner, though that is incredibly good. He sees a son or daughter clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what He sees. God doesn't simply forgive our sins, though that would be awesome. That is awesome, right? When God, when we sin, we, we are, are the record against us is long and deep. If God just forgave us of our accounting debt, we would be at zero. 
we'd be neutral. It's like, it's like I, when I was in college and I overdrafted my account, you know, that first time when you become a semi-adult and you have to call your mom and say, Mom, I did something stupid. Um, I, I overdrew my account. My mom could have just taken my account, you know, I was like $25 overdrafted. She could have just given me $25. What would that have done to my account? It made a zero. I'd have been out of trouble. My mom went and put $250 in my account. That's grace. I didn't deserve that. But think about what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't simply forgive the ledger against us. He gives us his righteousness. And there is no sin you can commit that that account cannot cash. Now, does that mean we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, because the grace we receive is transformative grace. And Jesus is better than any sin or any self-righteousness. So that's what happens. When we come to the cross, we we give Jesus, Jesus takes our sin. This is the transaction. Jesus takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Listen, that is the good news of the gospel. Paul doesn't have, and I'm going to close with this. It's time for me to close. Paul doesn't have anymore a do-it-yourself kind of religion. Paul doesn't have that. And we don't need it either. The only thing any of us bring to Jesus, hear me, the only thing that you bring to Jesus in your relationship to him is the sin from which you need to be saved. You don't come to Jesus bringing, hey Jesus, I got this part over here. I'll take care of this righteousness on my own. No, the only thing you bring into this relationship is the sin from which you need to be saved. Jesus takes our sin, gives us his righteousness, and that is an incredible and an infinitely gracious exchange. I'm reminded here of the song um, of the song that goes like this, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. It says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. So what doesn't fulfill it? My labors, my do-it-yourself. He says, could my zeal no respite know? That means if my zeal never took a vacation, could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. None of those things could atone for my sin. Thou must save and thou alone. And then he says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's someone who understands the gospel. Now this is the ultimate question, and this is how I'm going to close. You have to answer this, each of you as an individual. When you stand before God, and you will, what will you argue or present as the ground, as the reason upon which God should allow you into his holy presence? Not into heaven, but to stand before him as worthy of his blessing and acceptance instead of his wrath and judgment? Will you give him a do-it-yourself answer? Will you give him some fleshly confidence? Will, you, will your confidence surpass Paul's confidence or that of the Pharisees? Now let me say why that truth is so cru crucial. If you can save yourself, Jesus died for nothing. Do you understand what, what, what the argument is here? If you could contribute to your salvation, Jesus died for nothing. If 
you refuse God's gracious offer through Jesus, then what you are saying is you are basically saying to God, no thanks God, you allowed your son to be murdered for nothing, but I can do this myself. Can you imagine the horror of someone standing before Jesus and saying that to the Father? I didn't need him. Don't you know how good I am? Heaven will be blessed to have me. It's do-it-yourself religion. Whether it's moral self-righteousness on one hand or complete debauchery on the other, it is living as though you are the ultimate decider of your fate. Your only hope is Jesus. My only hope is Jesus. Amen? Amen. So as we move into a time of invitation, I'm going to pray. If you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. If you are looking, if you need to repent of your own, even though you know Jesus, of your own self-righteous efforts, then repent. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. We're not going to have a do-it-yourself religion. We're going to have a, a gospel of dependence on God and His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, bless your word as we've heard it preached. Father, we ask that we would tuck it deep into our heart. And Father, that we would die to every fleshly advantage we think we have. And we would fall on the sheer mercy and grace of Jesus. And not have a righteousness of our own by do-it-yourself religion. But the righteousness that only comes by faith in Jesus. We ask this in his name.